Hello and you're listening to Scar Joe A Gogo, the podcast where I chronicle and dissect the films of Scarlett Johansson in chronological order. I'm Luke and this week I am talking about The Black Dahlia. We're here to learn, not just to yarn, for our most loved celebrity. We'll watch the screen, what can we glean from her career trajectory? Cause she'd prefer if you'd refer to her as Miss Johansson. Don't be a jerk to Miss Johansson. Respect her work. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe go. Fucking writers and directors, you make me so frustrated. Hello, everybody. How are you? But I mean, seriously. I mean, what the fuck? They they get these wonderful people to work with, and they don't know what they want to do with them. Like, they don't give these people uh, interesting characters, or wonderful dialogue, or acting challenges. Seriously, it's it's like being given a PlayStation 4 and using it to prop a door open. You make me so angry. This should be a celebration of Scarlett Johansson and her performances. And look, she's great. She's doing great things, but you gotta put her in great movies and give her great characters and give her things to do. I'm becoming a broken record. I'm becoming a broken record. I'm becoming a broken record who is very frustrated at the current spate of Scarlett Johansson films. Because, you know, this isn't some nobody directing this thing today. The Black Dahlia. This is Brian... De Palma, he directed Scarface, for Christ's sake. This should be good. Like, he should know what it is like to put an iconic, memorable character on the screen. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We've got to simmer down, take a few deep breaths, count to ten, to nine, in your heads, and let's do this. We've got this... When we last left Scarlett Johansson, the wily Woody Allen had hastily morphed Scarlett into a bizarre caricature of himself. In the messy, metaphysical murder mystery, it's a lot of M's, a scoop. And these two friends, two pals, Woody and Scarlett, were becoming so much alike that it was beginning to be quite difficult to tell exactly where one ended and the other one began. And they had a lot of great indulgent fun together, which we, as an audience, were mostly not a part of it. We were like, hey, we're here too. Hey, how about including us in your... Okay, you guys just go have fun. That's fine. So in last week's episode, I'd very much questioned the motives of the, the writer and the director. Which brings us back to Brian De Palma who here is directing The Black Dahlia, based on a novel by James Elroy. This is the guy that did Scarface, he did The Untouchables. I'm sure he gets to do pretty much anything he wants. And so I feel the blame on this uh, film is entirely on him. It's not on Scarlett Johansson. I've said this before, but it's not. Actors get a lot of shit about films. People go, oh, they weren't very good because of this or that. No, it's up to him. 
Like, if Scarlett Johansson gets the call that you get to star second billing, mind you, in a new film by Brian De Palma, who did, oh, you know, Scarface, which was like, oh, you know, really popular before you were even born, Scarlett Johansson, then of course she is going to say yes. Of course she is going to do it. She would be nuts not to do it. But the impetus is on him to make a great film. And you know, when you've done all these great films like Brian De Palma has, it's not unreasonable that an audience would expect greatness. So what happened here? From a very uh, scar-centric angle, let's take a look at The Black Dahlia, a film from 2006, and see what we think went wrong. Let's make the best out of a bad situation. Let's keep on rolling on, my friends. It's, gonna, it's gotta get better, right? Well, the, the advantage is we know it does. She's got some great movies coming up. So let's just get through this one. So, the film opens on Josh Hartnett in an old-timey boxing ring getting his fists taped up. And uh, as I said, Scarlett gets second billing here, even before Aaron Eckhart. Now, this is a big cast. You've got um, Eckhart, Hartnett, you've got Scarlett, you've got Hilary Swank, you've got like uh, 15 other people. And I'm thinking from the synopsises, synopsis, synopsises, synopsis, the uh, summaries that I've read, I'm thinking, you know, this is a film about Hartnett and Eckhart being manly men and doing their thing. It's hard for me to imagine, just on the surface, that Scarlett is really going to have a lot to do here. So I'm curious as to how this was all going to pan out. And, uh, you know, quite surprised that she did get second billing above Eckhart, and quite hopeful then that maybe there was more to all this than I thought. And uh, the film's set in 1946, or at least it begins in 1946, uh, and with a big riot in the street. And I should say that this film looks absolutely wonderful. Certainly can't fault De Palma for the look of this thing. Uh, It pans across these, like, retro city streets. Uh, Hartnett is a cop, and he meets Eckhart, who uh, he recognises also as an ex-boxer. And, like, these guys bond instantly because they both love punching things. I mean, shit, who doesn't? I want to punch something right now. And, actually, Hartnett narrates throughout this thing. And, uh, although he tries to go as deep and sultry as Scarlet, he kind of misses the mark. I think she would have been a better narrator. But this is Hartnett's story. He is our protagonist. We're just going to have to wait and see how she fits in. And, thankfully... We don't have to wait long. About five minutes into this thing, Eckhart introduces Hartnett to his gal pal, Kay Lake, played by none other than, you guessed it, Scarlett Johansson. And uh, we start by seeing the back of her, and she turns uh, towards the camera, and we're looking at her in close-up. So it is something where her reveal is intended to have immediate impact. We know that she is somebody who is going to be important to the story. And uh, I could tell straight away in the first couple of seconds, she turned around, I paused this thing, started furiously typing notes, because I could already see 
that we were up for some very uh, classic Scarlet action. There were some things here which are instantly recognisable that we can tie back to other films. Like, firstly, she's smoking. Before she turns, she exhales a big puff of smoke. And uh, as I've said before, she smokes in a ton of movies that she's in. So it's no surprise to see her smoking here. Um, I've been utterly convinced that she's a smoker in real life because of the amount of times that she smokes on screen. There are people on fire that smoke less than Scarlett Johansson. Uh, two, she always looks amazing in period costume. And she is in total femme fatale mode here. Make no mistake, like the mistake I just made, no mistake. Make no mistake. No more mistakes from now on. Make no mistake that this film by Brian De Palma is a, a sort of faux modern day noir, crime noir thriller. Lots of shadows. Lots of, uh, you know, it's like a dime store pulp novel. So we can expect some broad character archetypes to an extent. I think that's fine, especially in the setup. It's where you go from there and what you do with them that I think is the challenge. How do you make that interesting? How do you, you take those stock characters and end up surprising us? I think you can do that even with something based in, in Pulp Fiction. I mean, look at uh, a little film I like to call, oh, Pulp Fiction! Look at what that did with some of those sort of stock characters. You didn't see half of that stuff coming, right? Right. It's me high-fiving your brother, sister, lover. I don't know what I'm doing there. Ignore that. Uh, yes, so she's got bright red lipstick, uh, vintagely styled blonde hair. It's curled and pinned under a hat at a rakish angle, which is casting shadows over her sort of black smoky eyes. And um, the third thing is I think she always has possessed this distant outsider quality. And the best directors, the best writers have, have used that in some way. I feel like she comes across, even just as a person sometimes, as someone from another place and time. And I think that she fits into these period films, especially visually, very well because of that. There's something a little bit otherworldly about her. So you add up all these things, and really, this should be an absolute no-brainer. If this is what you were looking for, a femme fatale in a period film, Scarlet to go to. You couldn't hope for better than that. So, so far, all this is aligning. You've got an interesting director uh, based on a book by an interesting writer. You've got an interesting cast. On paper, this sounds promising. This sounds pretty great. But man, like, if you've ever been involved in creative projects, I feel like sometimes having such a great team can make you lazy too because you think, oh, no, we've got this. Like, you become complacent. You, you, you're so convinced that everybody's great and it can't fail that you're not hungry enough and you're not putting in that work that sort of allows you to really experiment and find the thing and, and you're sort of blinded by the caliber of the group you've got. Does that make sense? Like you're not seeing this thing in terms of is it really going to engage an audience? You're more like, oh, you're great. You're great too. You're, all, you're feeling all Hollywoody and telling everybody they're great and trusting that, oh, they'll bring it and, and I'll bring it and, and we got this. But you don't got it. You don't ever actually bring it. So look, her first line, I think I've forgotten to say her first line for a while, 
is Hello. And it's actually sweet and, and light, which I wasn't expecting. I thought she'd go for that sort of sultry husk. But uh, it's more charming than, than sexy. But idiot Josh Hartnett has his mouth full, barely responds to her. And then the uh, men begin talking about manly police things. And uh, she looks off to the side, quite disinterested. I like this. Um, I think, that, you know, this first scene promises a lot of things that I don't know if they ever follow up. Uh, because she's sharp here. Uh, you know, the patented scarcasm shines through when she uh, quips at Eckhart about talking about her in the third person, which I love. You suddenly go, you know, this is 1946. She's uh, sort of tagging along as his gal pal, but, uh, you know, she's sticking up for herself. She's not going to put up with any bullshit and she's very self-motivated like she points out that she really likes art uh, she uses a lot of big words and the scene um ends with her saying uh, again in that really sort of sly wry witty way that their forthcoming boxing match because they're going to have this uh, fundraising boxing match for the police because they're both ex-boxers she says for aesthetic reasons she hopes they both look good with their shirts off so she's, you know, she's playful, she's smart, she's sarcastic, she's toying with them. And then there's this great sexy shot of her putting the cigarette holder back into her wide, red-lined mouth uh, while saying all this. She's got complete eye contact with Hartnett. It's fantastic, it's iconic, you're like, I want to screen cap this for the podcast, but then De Palma has the fucking nerve to crossfade over the top of it. So, you know, if you want to see this shot, you're going to have, a, like, a building over her head. De Palma, you cad. Uh, it is a great city shot, though, and all the city shots uh, from De Palma are really fantastic. I think uh, the film does have a lot of personality, and it does have a lot of atmosphere. Um, and uh, so Hartnett, speaking of uh, personality, goes home to his crazy old father, who is shooting pigeons out the window, cradling a model plane like it's a tiny baby. Hartnett needs money. He needs money to sort this shit out, basically. So soon enough, he's back at the boxing place. He's watching Eckhart in the ring training. And Scarlet enters. Again, total femme fatale mode here. All slink. She's still got the cigarette holder. She reiterates her line about how good he looks without the shirt. She reveals she was no good at art and became a history major instead. So again... Very educated woman, self-styled, confident, still has promise at this point. And um, I don't know, she looks great, but I did feel that there's an imbalance in the performances between her and Hartnett, who she's standing with. I mean, visually it's fantastic, it looks like it's from an old film. But there's something about this exaggerated slink where I feel that she's more of a period film caricature in this film, whereas he's actually playing it quite low and straight. The, the tone's not quite right between them. He's being more natural, she's being more like she's in a scene in Sin City. And I, I feel like De Palma's got mixed messages here. He didn't find the happy medium between the two. And look, she flirts with Hartnett. Uh, and remember, she's Eckhart's girlfriend, not Hartnett, but she flirts with Hartnett with the subtlety of a sledgehammer here. Uh, and, you know, sleazy saxophone music plays in the background throughout all of this as well. There are times when you're certainly thinking, you know, is this being played totally straight? Or is it tongue-in-cheek in the way that, you know, like a Coen Brothers movie uh, might be? Uh, so, look, 
we head to the actual fundraiser boxing match between Eckhart and Harnett. Scarlet is in the audience. She wears fur, black hat with a black mesh veil as she kisses Eckhart. Good luck. I mean, what is she expecting here? A funeral? Thinks he's going to die? That's what it feels like from her costume. She wishes Hartnett luck too. Definitely playing both of these men, stringing them along. And you would certainly be forgiven for thinking at this point in the film, if you didn't know anything about it, that this idea of a love triangle between these three characters was the absolute heart of the film. That this is what it was about, because everything seems to be setting that up right now. Spoilers, it's not really at all what this film is about, and yet we spend a lot of time on it at the beginning. Uh, she does look shocked and concerned, though, when Hartnett starts knocking the shit out of Eckhart. But chill, everybody. I believe in Harvey Dent. You should, too. He uh, puts a big dent in Hartnett when he takes him down, and Scarlet is thrilled. So mixed messages there, again. Is she more interested in Hartnett or Eckhart? Hard to tell. Uh, it turns out, anyway, the whole match was rigged. Hartnett took the fall, basically, in order to get money for his dad. Uh, so that he could go and be crazy in a crazy house instead. Which is a much better place to get your crazy on than alone at home with a gun. So time heals all wounds, even Hartnett smashed in face. And he goes around to dinner at Eckhart's. And, and Scarlet, I thought this was again where it just feels tongue in cheek. I mean, I guess it was 1946, but she's wearing a frigging frilly apron. And uh, totally being like a housewife in pearls you know perfectly made up to stand around the house all day and again she lingers too long on Hartnett sitting opposite him at the table very very clear that she's into him all the movie wants to tell us at this point is that she's into Hartnett and some poor etiquette as well she totally smokes at the table while the other people are eating we don't see her eat either I think she just like drinks wine and smokes and cooks food and never eats anything herself. It's not healthy. It's destructive. At the beginning, you're like, yeah, yeah, she's amazing. Uh, I can see the attraction here. Now I'm starting to get concerned about her. And then the, um, you know, the three of them, Hartnett, Eckhart, Scarlett, they start hanging out in a montage, and they're doing lots of drinking and socializing. There's even this nice silent moment as they watch a film together. Um, I think it's actually the, you know, the... Um, Oh, Christ, what's it called? The Man Who Laughed, something like that. The one with that Conrad guy with the big smile that the Joker is based on. You'd think I'd have that in my notes. Didn't write it down. Wasn't thinking about it at the time. Now I'm thinking about it. Now I'm wishing it was in my notes. Impetus is on me to figure that out and let you know. If for you, this is like booking into an audio hotel. Run the concierge. I have to take care of you. I have to let you relax. I don't want you doing any heavy lifting. You, you're putting me in your ears. i got to make sure you get your money's worth. Can't tell you the name of that film. Could look it up now, but I've already made such a big waste of time about it. That'd make it worse. Not going to do it. But yeah, Scarlet sits in the darkened cinema. Uh, she gets emotionally invested in this thing. She becomes a little bit overwrought. And she grabs both of their hands in the darkness. She wants it all. She wants the whole world. Why is this film called The, the Black Dahlia again? I'm sure we'll get there eventually. Now it is 1947. A whole year has passed. And goddamn does it feel like it. Hartnett dances with Scarlet at New Year's. 
putting his hands on her waist, the devil. And then, uh, Christ, there's this almost comical slow motion scene, which, uh, you know, people give Zack Snyder shit about using too much slow-mo. If he ever sees Brian De Palma, he should be all, I learned it from you. Scarlet blows Eckhart a kiss in slow motion as the clock strikes midnight. He's on the other side of the room. We already know exactly what's going on. We know she's into Hartnett. It's so freaking clear. She then kisses Hartnett in slow motion. And then in super slow motion, Eckhart becomes suspicious and kind of angry while looking at him. Uh-oh. What's going to happen here? Is this going to split up their friendship? What's going on? Brian De Palma doesn't really care at this point. Whole lot of setup, but it's not really going anywhere. Also... This isn't about Scarlett Johansson, just a side fact I learned while watching this film. There was a lot of pistol whipping going on in the 40s, apparently. I'm assuming the bullets were quite expensive. Guns were used like clubs. Okay, so finally, some serious Black Dahlia-based police business. Eckhart and Hartnett are involved in a shooting while they're out on the beat. And uh, this leads to the mysterious mutilated female body of an ex-actress dubbed the Black Dahlia is found in the field. This thing is lacerated. It's got a huge smile type thing cut across her face. And uh, she's also halved. She's been disemboweled um, and and cut completely in half. This is also, uh, this murder is based on a true story. In real life, uh, the murderer was never found. So suddenly, this film is not about a love triangle. It's not about Scarlett Johansson being into Hartnett. It is about the murder of this completely unrelated woman. We'll work with it. Eckhart returns home uh, very wearily to the perfectly made-up Scarlett, who again must have spent the whole day looking beautiful in this empty suburban house. Eckhart storms off to brood. There's something about all this that is really worrying him. And, and Scarlett, with wonderful noir shadows, gets to talk to Hartnett alone. And uh, remember at the beginning, she was this wonderfully sort of witty, educated, confident woman. I don't know if we ever really see that character again moving forward. Here she's vulnerable, she's concerned, and I feel like she's going to spend most of the remaining time of the film, and there's a lot of film left, with a furrowed brow looking concerned at things. I'm scared, Dwight, she says. And you think, okay, now they're going to kiss. Now they're going to make out because we've been building to this. But no, she runs away like a startled deer. Then later, uh, Hartnett is in the living room and he views Scarlett, who's standing at the top of the stairs. She's actually in the bathroom with the door open and wearing her ye olde vintage underwear. And um, it's a weird shot because she sort of looks back at him looking a little bit concerned, staring at him, almost this kind of, what are you doing, looking at me in me underwears? Then she turns away to, I don't know, is she running the bath or something? Then she looks back at him again, sort of concerned, like, what are you doing looking at me in me underwears? And then she goes back uh, and turns her back again. And the large initials, BD, are carved into the small of her back. And Hartnett recognises these immediately as the initials of Bobby Dewitt, who is a convict from Eckhart's past, that is one of the things that was mentioned during the shootout scene that is really getting him all flustered. 
Scarlet looks great in vintage underwear. And this is about the tension again, but it's also mixed messages because is this about Hartnett and Scarlet and their tension? Or is this really just servicing a plot point about Bobby DeWitt? Is this about the murder? Hard to gauge what story we should be invested in at this point. And because of that, we're not really invested in anything. Our policemen heroes continue their investigation. They're investigating, investigating. Scarlet is at home on the couch, feet up on the couch. She's smoking again. I've said this before, criticism about some of the characters that she's played is there is no inner life outside the plot. She's just sitting here waiting for the plot to happen around her. She's all deeply concerned now. But really, she is like a prisoner in this house. There's no room for her to influence the story when she's as housebound as Hannibal Lecter in here. Hartnett comes in and she asks him about the two of them. You know, what about the two of us? And he says, there is no two of us. You know, Eckhart's my partner. He's my bro. He's my buddy. You and I, we don't have anything. So it's still all tease that's not going anywhere. You know, she's basically sitting around waiting for the appropriate time for this plot point, which has been slowly simmering for about an hour now, to actually have some purpose. And then she stands at the top of the stairs in the bathroom in her underwear again, looking at him pointedly before slamming the door to the bathroom. What I'm beginning to realize is, at the beginning when we first saw her and he was introduced to her, you thought this is an exotic, interesting person that would be a huge amount of fun to be around. This is somebody that would change your life. This is a desirable character. But now I'm thinking, like, what is her deal? What is it about her beyond her looks that makes her an intriguing character? And as far as her situation goes, it's hard for me to feel like any change of partner is going to have a significant change on her situation. She's like this trapped character, regardless of who she is. You feel like Hartnett would just come in, eclipse Eckhart, and then be in this same weird, trapped, suburban situation that they're in now. There's nothing about this lure of Hartnett that would offer her any kind of escape from anything. And there's nothing about Hartnett that suggests that Scarlet wouldn't do this same thing again if somebody else caught her eye. And in fact, as the investigation into the murder continues, her home life gets even shittier. Even though she's looking totally swank and she's making some really fancy, delicious-looking dinners, Eckhart begins yelling at her and throwing things around the house, uh, leading Hartnett to have to really step in and, and try and counsel him. But even this abuse at his hands would be an interesting thread to play and give the characters something to do. But it's done in a, you know, 30 second dining room scene where we come in quite late and see him, you know, just throwing plates around. And although this has been such a large part of the plot up until now, the film then goes on to delve into a lot of complicated and, and quite convoluted in my mind non-scarlet places. Um, so as a brief summary, Hartnett gets a lead to a lesbian club. He meets Hilary Swank. Turns out she knew the victim, the Black Dahlia. She's also the daughter of a very rich family. Uh, she seduces Hartnett, exchanging um, sex favors to keep her name out of the paper. Uh, he ends up going to meet her rich family and have dinner with them. Uh, these characters are all really quite important to what happens later but in many ways are completely detached from the story so far. 
Uh, it also turns out the Black Dahlia murder victim did a porno. Um, Eckhart grows even more distressed, etc., etc. I'm not really keen on reviewing this overall as a film and getting into all the minute bits of plot. And the reason is it just hasn't held my attention. It's pretty to look at, but it is incredibly slow going. And what I hate about it is it never has any real momentum or doesn't really get a grasp on anything in a substantial way that keeps us invested in it. Like it's impossible to keep focused on any particular thread. This isn't a film like Seven where you go, somebody's being murdered. This is a mystery. We want to know who the murderer was. We, we um, are on the edge of our seats at each grisly development. We want to solve a mystery along with these detective characters. Really, the murder seems peripheral for much of the film. When I feel it should have been front and centre, this is a thriller that is very, very light on thrills. It's not a terrible movie, but it's an incredibly bland one. And for me, that's the bigger crime. Like, I'd rather see something crazy and ambitious that just didn't work at all. Or something just, you know, so terrible that at least we could have fun with it. So Scarlet is absent for some time. Until we see her again sitting at the dining room table with perfect makeup and hair smoking and looking concerned. And there's more of this gradual connection with Hartnett which has still been going on for over an hour without any resolution. They touch hands briefly but nothing else and Scarlet's all shaky and super quiet in this scene. She's uh, worried about Eckhart and what he might do to the recently released Bobby Jewett. Which leads to one of the few scenes where something really happens. Um, Hartnett gets to Jewett first. And Jewett says that not only did he fuck Scarlet, but he calls her, and I quote his words, not mine, a big titty Dakota cunt. Whoa! They are fighting words. Not in this podcast, pal. Luckily, Eckhart shows up and shoots Jewett dead, but he does get snuck up on from behind and has his throat cut by a creepy, googly-eyed guy, and they both fall over the railing in slow-mo, thanks Zack Snyder, and are dead as dead. So, shit, that's why Eckhart didn't get second billing. He just bowed out of this film. He just cashed in his chips. And I guess that, uh, good news for Hartnett, Scarlet is single now. And sure enough, a broken up Hartnett, struggling with the death of his friend, goes to tell her what's happened. And she breaks down. She begins to cry and treat us to what is her most emotional and challenging performance of the film, but De Palma, crazy Brian De Palma, once again, just as she gets started, cross fades away from it like he just can't be fucked with it. Like he's just like, ah, I can't be fucked with women and their emotions. I'm telling this police story. Here, look at the city some more. Days pass. Hartnett has dinner with the perfect looking Scarlet who is still sad and quiet. And I'm beginning to believe that she is literally shackled to that fucking dining room table. Every time we see her, she is attached to this table. Hartnett breaks down some more. And finally, after all this time, now that her husband is dead, Scarlet begins kissing him. And I just wonder if this scene 
could have happened without any of that lead up. Like you didn't need to spend all that time with her flirting with him because um, I think the scene would have happened anyway. Like, she quickly abandoned that smart, sassy, sarcastic character after scene three. She could have been the victim all along. He was upset, she was upset, they're both grieving, and all this emotion, and they end up kissing and surprising themselves that, oh my god, are we interested in each other? Oh, that would make more sense to me, and it would cut out so much of that bullshit at the beginning. Because he never betrays his friend while he's alive. She never cheats on Aaron Eckhart. It all happens after his death. And, as if to absolutely wonderfully prove my former point about her being um, absolutely attached to this table, he starts tearing off her clothes and lays her down to get busy with her on said dining room table. And then De Palma crossfades away again just as it starts to happen because he doesn't give a crap. And, and this was the really funny thing for me afterwards, after the sex... They are sitting side by side together back at the dining room table, which I imagine is just splattered with fluid. She's got a big cleaning job set out for her that day. And, you know, they have a a little kiss, not a really romantic kiss, more of a kind of subdued, hey, well, that was something kiss. And she very romantically asks him to replace a tile in the bathroom. What?! Can you imagine that? You've got, like, sexual tension with someone for over a year. You're finally just in a in a storm of emotion. Bang the absolute shit out of each other on a dining room table. Afterwards, she's like, yeah, do you think you could do some domestic chores for me? You know, my husband's dead, so uh, if you could do a bit of maintenance around here, that would be really appreciated. I mean, is this... The wonderful life that he's been wanting, is this what she's got to offer? Like, why doesn't he run away right now? And it's not fair on her character, because the only reason she asked him to replace this tile, which, um, you know, sounds stupid, so she says, oh, it scraped me, it scraped my foot. So it's a hazard, that's why he's got to do it now. Hey, look, I wouldn't ask you, but it's a hazard, dude. And sure enough, this broken tile is covered in her blood from her foot. Uh, But the whole reason she asks him is completely plot-driven. It's not character-driven. It's so that he can happen to find a huge stash of money under the bathroom tiles. She didn't know it was there. She's surprised. She reveals that Eckhart, before dying, or it's some time ago before dying, had secretly stashed it there, and she kind of wants to avoid why. And she's only seen through the bathroom mirror here. Which is, you know, a nice bit of film school stuff here. This is the other person, the other side of her, the duplicitous side, the girl in the mirror. You're picking up what I'm putting down. Then she's flustered in the kitchen. And she's, like, while he's confronting her, you know, where did this money come from? What the fuck are you guys up to? What's going on? She's setting the fucking table again. She's back to the dining room table. It's got to be a joke from De Palma. He knows that this table's getting... A workout in many different ways throughout this film. I'm surprised the table wasn't third build. And Scarlet reveals that Eckhart took the money from a bank robbery Jewett did. Uh, so that's why, you know, he wanted Jewett killed. She begs for forgiveness. Forgive me, Josh Hartnett. But Hartnett leaves in anger. He's like, no way. Because, you know, he's a good cop deep down. 
So then we go back to all the Hillary Swank Madeline stuff. This was the uh, lesbian friend kind of the bisexual friend that he started having sex with. He starts to sex her in the hallway. I think this guy needs to be bought a bed. Um, actually, they do end up making it to the bed. They wake up in the bed. She doesn't give him any domestic chores to do afterwards, so I think she's the better option. Uh, more mirror shots, this time of Josh. Now he's the man in the mirror. Now he's living the double life, the other life, the secret life, the mirror life, through the looking glass life. Humpty Dumpty and a walrus and the carpenter life. Uh, Scarlet sees Hartnett and Madeline through the window and gets all pissed off again. So, uh, can you believe this? She's followed him to the mansion and she's standing outside in front of her car. Now, I was actually surprised that she didn't bring the dining room table with her. I would like to have seen it set up on the lawn in front of a, like, um, you know, a kid's lemonade stand or something. But no, she's angry and she's all, she looks like that dead girl. How sick are you? And, uh, she's so angry that now she storms away. What, didn't he storm away angry before and now she's turned it around so that she gets to storm away angry at him even though he'd already left? Guys, look, everybody calm down. Clearly, in this situation, nobody is perfect. You're all as bad as each other. And this, I don't know what it is. This, she looks like that dead girl. How sick are you? Is kind of an awful, awkward line. It just, I don't know what it is. I'm not saying it's terrible delivery or anything, but it's just one of those lines that I kind of halted on. It just stood out. And I went, eh. But the thing is, De Palma then plays a couple of seconds later that line again. He has it echoing in Hartnett's head. He has Hartnett reminiscing on this weird line that we just heard. So you kind of go, eh. And then you hear it again moments later and you're like, ah, eh, ah, eh, ah. So anyway, look. She's exited, and this whole murder plot thing unravels without having anything to do with her or her character or her relationship with Josh Hartnett. So considering that this whole 25 minutes at the end has nothing to do with Scarlet, kind of got to wonder why we spent so much time with her in the beginning. And you know what? I'm not going to go into any real detail about what happens and who was the killer and all that sort of stuff because it is quite convoluted. And I also feel like, why just spoil it for you for the sake of spoiling it? I'm Not that I recommend this film. We do find out who did it. It's not a massive amount of suspects. Hartnett solves the case like a total pro, um, by which I mean he, he just sort of goes back to the mansion and basically shoots a lot of things. And once that's all over, Hartnett returns to Scarlet's house, even though we still haven't really seen what it is that is luring him in, apart from the fact that she is attractive. Because you know what? We know that she was with Bobby DeWitt, who's an absolute piece of shit. And we know that she was with Aaron Eckhart, who turned out to be a pretty bad cop and a bit of an abusive maniac. She makes really terrible choices. She flirts with other men behind her partner's back. She smokes like a fucking chimney. She's gonna look like an old piece of leather in about five years and have a voice like the fucking cookie monster. But no, 
he goes back. This is what he wants. He wants Scarlett Johansson because goddamn the plot demands it. And the door opens and there she is. It's a white room. It's almost glowing. She's wearing a white fluffy sweater. She's almost glowing. This is his bright salvation while outside in, in a kind of vision on the darkened lawn. The ripped in half corpse with the the smile carved into its face appears on the lawn being picked at by ravens and Josh Hartnett rubs his eyes and he blinks this horrible image away and he turns back to his saviour Scarlett Johansson and uh, you know I that white room the glowing the the sort of angelic nature of her was really pushed but when he looks back she's no longer the bright angel the light has dimmed She's back in this sort of natural yellow electric light and she's quiet and concerned again. And she leads him inside and closes the door. Closes the door on you and I. Everything's black. The end. That was the ending. He is with her. Maybe she's not this bright, wonderful angel. Maybe they're all flawed and messed up and, and this is as good as it's going to get. So in conclusion... I think I've made it clear all along the way here. It's just bland. We know why she was cast. She's perfect for this role. No-brainer. Excellent. We know why she did it. It's Brian De Palma. Well, what a great resume the man has. But the bottom line is we've seen all of these things done by her far better before in other movies. It's similar stuff that we've already seen and it's not as good as what we've already seen. So how can we possibly be excited about it? You know, playing the femme fatale who starts off really like sexy and sarcastic and then goes on this sort of emotional journey which is far more complicated than we expected was done far better in Woody Allen's Match Point. And even that sort of quirky film noir period piece was done so much better in The Man Who Wasn't There. There's all these familiar snippets which are kind of intriguing in isolation, but unfortunately in this particular story they don't add up to much. So it's a disappointment. We're in a little bit of a slump. I think we're being harder and harder on her because when we started, when she was just a kid and we were watching her career grow and we were seeing her do certain things for the first time, that was really exciting. And she was learning and we were giving her a lot of leeway. Now suddenly everybody wants to work with her. She can work with all these wonderful directors, but they're not all treating her as well as they could. And I guess that's the problem with suddenly becoming really famous is that you're more vulnerable to appearing in a lot of high-profile misfires. And this one certainly did not, did not hit the mark for me, sir. So, a little bit of housekeeping. Scarcabulary. What is the word or phrase that we will add to the Scarlet Science lexicon? I'm going to say furnitured. There's a good word. Furnitured. Consider yourself at home. Consider yourself part of the furniture. Brian De Palma certainly considered Scarlet part of the furniture and he completely furnitured her by practically tying her to a dining room table for most of this film. She was like a housewife in an old sitcom. It was like Bewitched, except without any of the witchcraft, which is the interesting part of Bewitched. Without that, you got a lot of sitting around and cooking. 
Her three greatest feats. This is a tough one. What are the three things we will remember her for in this film? Uh, number one, she looks great. And look, I hate to use her looks as a greatest feat. I think that's a cop-out, and I think it's unfair to her as a performer, but the truth is, they have not written her a great character here. She has been put in this film to look great, and look great she does. Visually, she's straight out of a classic Hollywood movie, and I don't think a lot of people have that quality, so today, when it's tough to find a feat, that's a feat. Two, she makes an excellent dinner. We haven't seen her cook before, right? We didn't see her eat her dinner, but uh, it's a brand new skill. Suspicious when a chef doesn't eat their own food. But let's not dwell on it. Three, excellent table work. Best supporting actor in tandem with best supporting table. If there was an award for that, her and the table would win it. She'd be up on that podium with the table. She'd be thanking Brian De Palma. The table would be thanking John Carpenter. <laughs> Uh, that amuses that was right off the top of the head that's not in my notes John Cuckers Carpenter he built the table <laughs> next time on ScarJo a go-go The Prestige god damn look she's working with all the great directors great directors directors that people think are great and uh, Christopher Nolan this time is the person telling the tale I have seen The Prestige before and mmm I'm not a big fan. I know there are people that are like, oh, prestige is an absolute work of genius. Christopher Nolan is the emperor of filmmaking. I'm the little kid that's going to stand up and go, excuse me, but that emperor is in the nud. He's not wearing any clothes, sir. I found it a frustrating experience the first time I watched it. Maybe it's better this time. It's not a massive role for Scarlett Johansson, but goddamn, we'll dive in. We'll see what we can get out of it, and we will put Christopher Nolan to task, to the test. On trial. On trial next week, Christopher Nolan. I'm in the courtroom, dressed as a little child, telling him that he is naked. Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning into Scarlett Johansson a go 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 mo Always thrilled that people listen to this show, which is very much a labor of love. You can also listen to my other two podcasts, FPcast, which is a pop culture podcast, pop 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 podcast for fruitless pursuits, and the book was better where we read a shitty novelization each week. Both of those podcasts can be found on iTunes or just go to www.fruitlesspursuits and you'll also find links to our discussion group on Facebook where you can talk directly to me about any of this stuff that you like or anything that's got you down. Maybe you just need a, someone to listen to you. Shoulder to cry on. I got two weak effeminate shoulders here, so bring a friend. I got your back, brothers. Sisters. <laughs> John Carpenters. Bye. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe go go.